So Acts 12, if you'd open Acts 12, please, fellow students, we'll dive right in. Uh, Yogi Berra once said, it's not over till it's over. That's the lesson today. And the lesson today, we're going to look at the great reverse on the beginning of this chapter, in the beginning of Acts chapter 12, James is dead, Peter's in prison, and Herod the wicked king is popular and powerful. At the end of chapter 12, a few verses later, Peter is free. Herod has been eaten by worms and is dead, and the gospel is unstoppable and growing. So we see the great reversal in chapter 12. This chapter records the supernatural deliverance of Peter and the supernatural death of Herod. Anyone who opposes God only wins temporarily, but in the end loses everything. Anyone who stands for God loses, may lose temporarily, but wins everything in the end. Here's the key idea. Jeremiah 32, 17 to 27 really summarizes this chapter. Nothing, nothing is too difficult for God, not even blank. Your job, should you choose to accept it, or your mission, yeah, is to fill in that blank. Every one of us in this room has points of unbelief in our heart where we say, God, you can do blah, 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 but X. You would really break a sweat, Lord, if you tried that one or that person, or that event, or that circumstance. So as we walk through today, keep Jeremiah 32. I'm going to swing back around for this one. Key idea, nothing is too difficult for God, not even blank. History is littered with the corpses of people who have fought against God and lost. You can talk biblically. You can look at the life of Cain. You can look at the life of Lot. You can look at the life of Pharaoh. You can look at King Balak of Moab who called Balaam to curse Israel and wound up blessing him. There were 31 kings in the land of Canaan that opposed Joshua, all of them killed. That Every single king in the northern ten tribes of Israel opposed God, every single one of them lost. King Sennacherib of Assyria invaded Judah with 185,000 troops going to capture Jerusalem. Hezekiah laid the letter, the threatening letter before the Lord, prayed about it. One night after dinner, God sent one angel after dinner and killed 185,000 of them like, right? Stalin, Hitler, Mao, Saddam Hussein. You can run the list in history of people that have demonstrated the folly of fighting against God. In Acts 12, we're going to meet another one, King Herod. King Herod is just one more example of one more king who fought against God and lost. Verse 1. Now about that time, King Herod laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. Let's get to take a look at Herod's family tree. This is only a partial look at Herod's family tree. Herod, by the way, means son of a hero. So if you name your kid Herod or your dog Herod, it'll mean son of a hero, right? There are four individuals in the New Testament who are called Herod. There's a lot more of Herod's family tree in the New Testament, but only four are called Herod. The first one is Herod the Great. He's the patriarch of the family. <coughs> this is the Herod who was ruling when Jesus was born in Matthew 2. Herod the Great was the one who, vis who got visited by the wise men in the East. Herod the Great is the one who killed every male child in Bethlehem under two years old and his evil plan to try and kill the Christ child. Herod the Great had ten wives. That stupid man. Really stupid man. I don't care how wise you are. The only stupider one was Solomon. He had a thousand, right? Okay, yeah. He was great, greatly foolish. Herod killed a number of his own children, more than one. On multiple occasions, he was paranoid, probably should belong in 3B. He actually killed one of his wives as well. Now, one of his many sons is the second Herod, Herod Antipas, A-N-T-I-P-A-S. That means Herod who's against, right? This was the Herod, Herod Antipas was the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. As you recall, at a drunken party, Matthew 6, um, Salome uh, did a dance and uh, it was so provocative that he said, anything you want, I'll give in. She said, give me the head of John the Baptist. And he was drunk and his guests were drunk and it was, he was embarrassed. So we had John the Baptist beheaded. That's the second Herod, Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was also the Herod for in front of whom Jesus stood in trial before his crucifixion. Not only Pilate, but Herod. This is Herod Antipas. It's one of Herod the Great's sons. And you find that in Luke 23. 
This Herod Antipas had a nephew named Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I, you go on down the line, you'll see Herod Agrippa I, was the grandson of Herod the Great. And he's the third king to use Herod. This is the Herod of our text today. So when you see King Herod in chapter 12, we're talking about Herod Agrippa I. This is the Herod that killed the apostle James, put Peter in prison, which we're going to see here in a few minutes. And this is also the Herod that was eaten by tapeworms and died under God's judgment. Now, Herod Agrippa I, the subject of our study today, had a son named Herod Agrippa II, I guess Jr. And the apostle Paul stood trial before him in Acts 25. So this Herod today we're going to look at in Acts 12. He was born in 11 BC. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. His daddy was named Aristobulus, and he was killed by Grandpa Herod when, when this king, Herod Agrippa, was three years old. So this is, this is a highly dysfunctional family, shall we say. His mother took him to Rome. He grew up with the imperial family, became a playboy. Lifestyle of the rich and famous, writ large, had to flee Rome to escape his creditors, actually spent some time in prison. He was appointed king over Palestine by the Roman emperor Gaius in 37. So this Herod Agrippa has been king over Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem since AD 37, just to give you a timeline at that point in time. He had a Jewish bloodline, he had Jewish history, and he, very political animal, he successfully maintained relationships with the Jews for years. He knew the Jewish law, he knew the Jewish rituals, and he kept most of them. He did it for all the wrong reasons, he was a politician through and through. Remember, the primary objective of Rome with respect to all of its provinces is Rome wanted peace in the provinces. Whatever you do as a proconsul, as a governor, you maintain peace, law and order. That's what Rome wanted in the provinces. Now that was a bit of a challenge because Israel was a hotbed of revolt. And every generation, somebody was leading a revolt in Judea or Samaria or something like that. So Herod was very interested in keeping the peace with the Jews. He wanted to curry favor with them. He wanted to maintain the peace and he wanted to get promoted by Rome. And the way he got promoted by Rome is you maintain peace at any price in the provinces. And so if killing a few Christians made the Jews happy and kept peace and led to his promotion, he was very willing to kill a few Jews. It was just part of the political price of his career goals at that point in time. Now Acts 11, chapter before, tells us that there was a great famine that occurred right during this period of time, and that was A.D. 44. So we're about 44 A.D., okay, about 14 years after the death of Jesus, this time frame occurred. This is 44 A.D. when chapter 12 occurs at that point. So the apostles are probably in their early to mid-30s, just to give you somewhat of an idea of a timeline at that point in time. I know many of you haven't seen the 30s for some time, but you remember Vaguely, right? I remember vaguely, too. The older I get, the vaguer it becomes. I see 30 every time I look at my wife. <laughs> you know, you have successfully avoided being a memorial today. That's very good. <laughs> yeah. The day is still young. Yes, that's true. You're going to have to suck up for the rest of the day, bud. I'm telling you. Okay, chapter, chapter 12, verse 2, moving right along. This Herod had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. Here's the principle. God's loving purpose controls everything in the lives of his saints, including, I know you'd rather skip this last part, including their suffering and death. God's loving purpose controls everything in the life of the saints and controlling their, their suffering and death. It's interesting, verse 2 is probably the shortest obituary that I've seen. It's a one-liner, right? He gets one line. Stephen gets two chapters, James gets one line. He's the first of the 12 apostles to be martyred. He was probably in his early 30s. Interesting that his brother John, James and John, the fisherman from the Sea of Galilee, John gets to live into his mid-90s. John probably dies at 96, 97, 98. He's, he lives a long life. James and John had grown up fishing together on the Sea of Galilee with their dad Zebedee. James, James and John and Peter were the inner circle, right? The three that did everything with Jesus at that point in time. It's intriguing, as Pastor Roger mentioned this morning, one day James and John asked Jesus if they could sit on his left hand and in his right hand when he, when he ruled on his royal throne in 
in, uh, in heaven, no ego here, you know, they were called the sons of Boanerges, the sons of thunder. That's what they were. And uh, they wanted the positions of the highest honor, you know, the right and left hand of the king was the most exalted positions. And we look at that and we go, you gotta be kidding. And you and I would have done the same thing, except we'd have done it sooner, right? I mean, who can hang out with a rabbi? The king, who wouldn't wanna be next to the king, right? Jesus, in turn, doesn't promise them, he asks them a question. He says, can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? Now, we've said in this class a thousand times, when Almighty God asks you a question, he is not seeking information. <laughs> he already knows. The question is for you. And, of course, James and John, they're probably late teenagers, maybe 18, 19. They're confident and they're clueless, just like you are when you were a teenager, right? You were confident and clueless. You say, like James and John, we are able. We can handle it for sure, Jesus. Right? We got this thing. Whatever cup you're going to drink, we can deal with. And now 14 years later, James is the first one to drink the cup. But they don't understand Jesus wasn't just talking about physical suffering, death on the cross. He was talking about separation from Almighty God, taking the wrath of God for our sins. That was the cup. They didn't have a clue just like us. So we look at them and we say, you got to be kidding. Well, James and John said, we can drink the cup. And in the providence of God, James is the first to drink the cup. And he's also the first to receive the crown of life of the 12. You know, from an earthly perspective, it's easy to conclude that James got a raw deal. From a heavenly perspective, James gained everything and lost nothing. Right? Philippians 1.21, Paul said, for me to live is... Christ and to die is loss. What? Gain. To die is gain. That's why when you go to a memorial service, I know we cry for us, but I'm telling you for them, we ought to be having a party. Why would being with face to face with Jesus be a bad thing? Isn't that the payoff? Isn't that the goal? Isn't that what we're gunning for here? See, decades later, James's brother, John, would record in Revelation 2.10, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Well, James has the crown of life at that point. Here's an interesting line for you. Someone once said, always interpret your circumstances by God's love, not God's love by your circumstances. You want to write that one down. Some of you are in circumstances. You need to remember this. I'll say it twice more. Always interpret your circumstances by God's love. Not God's love by your circumstances. Always interpret your circumstances by God's love. Not God's love by your circumstances. You look through, your, through the love of Jesus. That's the glasses you look at your circumstances because the cross demonstrates his love for you. You know, the reality is maybe Jesus took James home first because he wanted face-to-face -face fellowship with him. Maybe he said, you know, you've suffered enough. It's time to come home. That's a pretty good deal. That is the really good deal. Verse 3. When Herod saw that it pleased the Jews, that killing James pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also now was during the days of unleavened bread. Now remember, a politician, above all else, is a pragmatist. Never forget that. Whatever works is right. Whatever pleases the people is right. That's the nature of politics. I'm not critiquing it. It's the nature of politics. So when murdering James made made Herod popular with the Jews, he figured, well, let's arrest Peter. Peter's the head of the church. We can really get some political favor here. Now, this happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, the Passover was a one-day uh, feast. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was seven days after that. So this whole Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover in the seven days, was an eight-day period of time. Every Jewish male was required to attend this feast. So the city of Jerusalem would have been packed. You've got pilgrims and patriots and uh, law-abiding Jewish males, the, the place is just jumping with people. And of course, arresting Peter at the height of this festival is just pure political grandstanding. Herod was going to make a statement. He wanted to curry favor. All these people were here. They hated the Christians. He's going to arrest one of them. He already killed one, put one in prison. This was big-time political press for Herod at that point in time. Now, Herod didn't want to execute James, I mean, execute Peter during the festival, that would have been a pretty big religious distraction, political distraction. So verse 4 tells us when he had seized him, he put him in prison, 
delivering to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him up before the people. So he's going to wait till the Passover celebration is over, the very next day after it's over, before the crowds left town, he's going to do a public trial, a sham trial, and he's going to do a public execution. When they say bring him out before the people, that literally means to execute him. So Peter's got a death sentence on his head at that point in time. And Herod knew the Jews were jealous of Christianity, the growth of Christianity, so he was going to get a lot of political payday by executing Peter. Peter was probably imprisoned in the Antonia Fortress. Now the temple sits on top of the Temple Mound and one of the walls of the temple enclosure is the Antonia Fortress, named after Antony, of course, uh, of Roman fame at that point in time. The Romans put this fortress right next to the temple square because the temple had been the site of bloodshed, revolt, uprising, seditions, treason for decades and de generations. And they said, we don't have time to get a garrison of soldiers to the temple site. We're going to station them on the temple mount. And for those of you who've been in Israel, you've been in the Antonia Fortress, and I'm telling you, they share a common wall. You look right over, there's the Temple Square. So they could get soldiers into the Temple Square because there had been more murders taking place in that square than you could shake a stick at. It was a bloody, bloody, bloody place of insurrection at that point in time. So Herod's taking no chances with Peter. He puts him in maximum security prison. Now, if you were Herod, you wouldn't take any chances either. Peter's been in prison twice before, and the last time the apostles were in prison, they had a jailbreak done by an angel. I think you'd be a little paranoid if you were Herod. You know, I'm going to put this guy in prison. I'm going to make sure he stays in prison. So he's got a guard of 16 soldiers. A squad is four, six-hour shifts, six, four, you got to get the drill, right? 16 soldiers covers 24 hours. Every six hours, you have shift change. So you have four or four soldiers every six hours at that point. This is maximum security. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison. That's the human side. Now where the spiritual side is, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. Here's the principle. Prisons, palaces, and politicians are no match for prayers. So keep praying. I know you go amen, 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 but yeah. I want you to notice the contrast. The powerful human government has visible prisons. The small church of Jesus Christ has invisible prayers. The church didn't have any political pull at Herod's palace to get Peter released. You normally would say, well, make a phone call. Don't you know somebody in Herod's palace, you can, I mean, pull some strings here and get this guy released. The church didn't have that, so they just bypassed Herod's throne and went straight to the king of kings. Let's just go to God himself, right? You're going to have a communication about something you need done. James 5.16 says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, the word fervent here is a very, very interesting word. Fervent here means stretched to the limit, stretched to the max. What it is, it's a picture of an athlete's muscle. You all have muscles? You use them occasionally, Right? Right, this arm muscle, we all use that one a lot. The word fervent literally means intense. It means an athletic muscle that is stretched out to the limit, stretched out to the full capacity, can't go any further without breaking. That's fervent, that's the picture, an athletic muscle that's stretched to full capacity. Have you ever prayed fervently? You will know it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And they're praying fervently for day and night. They might have been praying up to a week, depending on when Peter got arrested, because it's an eight-day festival. So they're praying 24-7 here at this point in time. And I thought to myself, I, you know, I'll bet they paid fervently for James, too. You think? I bet they prayed fervently for James. And James was murdered. Then they're not sure whether it's God's will that Peter gets executed or not. But they're praying. And God answers prayer according to his divine wisdom, not ours. Seeing prayer is not putting your order in at a fast food restaurant where you get what you want, when you want, the way you want it, right? Prayer is conversation with God. It's not commanding God. God answers prayer in his way, in his time, for his glory and our good. Verse 6. On the very night when Herod was about to bring Peter forward, that means... The next day he was going to get executed, so the festival's over. 
Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. Luke is setting the context. Luke is giving you a picture of the scenario that Peter is in because when you see what God does, you will understand that only God could do it. In human terms, this was the last night of Peter's life on earth. In the morning, he's going to be publicly executed. And of course, he is pacing the cell. It says he's sleeping. Here's why he was sleeping. He knew that Herod couldn't kill him. He utterly knew that tonight was not his last night on earth. If you read John 21, Jesus is having a little conversation with Peter when he restores him to ministry and he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? He goes, yeah, yeah, I love you, love you. Feed my sheep. And then uh, Peter says, what about this man? What about John, right? John the apostle. Of course, the Lord says, Peter, you follow me. And then Peter gets told by God, by Jesus, when you were young, you went and did what you want. When you're old, the Romans are going to stretch out your arms and they're going to take you to a place you don't want to go. He prophesied that Peter was going to be crucified as an old man on a Roman cross. Now that would change your future orientation toward life, wouldn't it? Peter's at the time of Jesus' ascension right there in the Sea of Galilee, within 40 days of that, is probably maybe in his early 20s. And you have been told by God himself that you are going to be crucified as an old man. How would it change your view of the future? I promise you it would change your view of the future. Right? So Peter's sleeping because he knows that tonight's not his last night on earth, but he knows he has a Roman cross waiting for him because Jesus Christ told him that. Now, by the way, this wasn't Peter's first rodeo in prison either. This is the third time. He'd been here, done that to some degree. So when Peter writes in 1 Peter 5, 7, it's a good one for you to memorize, cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you. He was writing that from personal experience. By the way, that cast all your cares on him for he cares for you, that's a choice. That's a command, but it's a choice. You can either choose to carry the cares or you can choose to cast them, which literally means roll them, roll them, release them, give them to the Lord, and then don't take them back. We say, Lord, blah, 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 can you do blah, 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 blah? And within five minutes, we're worrying about it like he never hurt us. When you cast them, let them go. Don't go pulling them back, right? So Peter's living this truth at that point in time. You know, from a human standpoint, the best thing that could happen to Peter would be a supernatural deliverance, and the worst thing is that Peter would be face-to-face -face with Jesus in heaven. Really? I mean, how can the guy lose? Either he gets supernaturally delivered or he gets face-to-face -face with Jesus. What would you choose? For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. Huh? We need to look at life and death from an eternal perspective instead of a human perspective. This earth is not where you want to be forever, folks. And the older you get and the more you hurt, the less you want to be here forever. That's one of the reasons God lets you age. The reason some of us hurt is he's getting us ready to go home. Because if everything worked here, you'd go, just heaven can wait. You saw the movie. Yeah, just hang on. God, I'll, I'll, I'll be ready. Well, you know something? When it comes time to die, most of us are going to be ready. Because we're going to be so broken down and this life will be so busted up for us. We'll go, you know, Jesus, I'm ready to go. That's part of what gets us focused. Peter had an eternal perspective. He had a Roman cross in front of him and he was going to live for Jesus until then at that point in time. So normally in prison, the prisoner's right hand would be chained to the guard's left hand. Peter's case, Herod's not taking any chances. He's got both arms chained to two guards, one on each side. So Peter's in chains between two people and he's got two soldiers standing watch outside the door. Verse 7 and behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter's side and woke him up and said, get up quickly and his chains fall off his side. You ever notice that God's always on time? Never late, never early. I mean, he's within hours of being executed. It's the last night, right? God's right on schedule. If God always answered our prayers the first time we prayed, we would treat him like a genie in a bottle. Wouldn't we? Say yes. We do now. We do. We tend to. 
So God sometimes wait to answers our prayers, number one, to build our faith, number two, to remind us who's in charge. It's not us, right? You pray, you should pray, bring them to the Lord, but then surrender it to God. Thomas Watson, Puritan preacher said once, the angel fetched Peter, but prayer fetched the angel. I thought that was good. The angel fetched Peter, but prayer fetched the angel. So here's the picture. The glory light of heaven floods this cell. Peter is sleeping so soundly, the angel's got to hit him with a stick to wake him up. I mean, he'd hit him, wake him up, right? That's, that's sleeping. The chains fall off. Obviously, human chains are no limit for God, right? And the guards don't wake up in the middle of all this racket. Surprise, surprise. The Lord is in charge. He puts them to sleep. Verse 8, the angel says to Peter, Gird yourself, put on your sandals, and he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. Now, you know, you listen to the angel telling Peter what to do, and it sounds like a parent, you know, getting their kid ready for school, right? Wake up. Wake up. Get dressed. Put on your shoes. Don't forget your, don't forget your coat. I'll walk you out to the street, right? So the angel's telling Peter what to do step by step by step. He's obviously groggy. He follows the angel out of the cell. Verse 9. And he went out and continued to follow the angel, and Peter did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. He's sleeping so soundly, he thinks he's dreaming. He thinks this is a dream. He thinks this is a vision. By the way, this is not the first visions Peter had, right? I mean, remember a couple chapters ago, he's on the roof in Joppa praying, and he gets this picture of a sheet coming out of heaven. That's a vision. It's so real, he thinks it's a vision. He's not sure it's the real thing at that point in time. It's interesting, who's taking the initiative here? Who's initiating this escape? God, right? Peter is doing nothing, contributing to his own rescue except obedience. Now, when God does it all, who deserves all the glory? God. Our flesh hates this, but God receives the most glory when you are the most helpless. I don't like being helpless. I want God to receive the glory, but I still want to be Superman. Doesn't work that way, right? Because human flesh will take the credit. So God arranges many times our lives where there's nothing we can do except pray. And that's not saying there's something you shouldn't do after that, but many, many times God wants us dependent. As a matter of fact, all the time he wants us dependent because that's when, when he works, we give him the glory and it's pretty obvious it's him because we didn't do anything, right? That's this particular case. Verse 10. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angels departed from him. So it's interesting, you got a first and second guard, you got defense in depth. You have multiple layers of guards covering this prison. By the way, this was the maximum security prison in Israel at that point in time. And all of these guards are either asleep or the Holy Spirit has supernaturally suspended their senses. So they're not aware that Peter and the angel are walking out of the prison at that point in time. And this iron gate is just like when you walk out of Target, you know, it kind of opens up. Right? Electric. We, we go, well, all doors open for me, right? There should be a doorman for me. I mean, you know, right? Well, the angel comes, opens the gate, right? And they walk out down the street. And as soon as the angel gets done with his job, he reports back to heaven, right? And Peter's left by himself. Verse 11 says, when Peter came to himself, that's a fancy way of saying when he woke up, right? He's outside now. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people we're expecting. Now, if, you know, if you have enough cold air, you'll wake up too, and that's probably what happened here. He now realizes it wasn't a dream, it wasn't a vision, it actually happened. God had actually rescued him from death and thwarted Herod's plans. What it's interesting to me, it says, from the hand of Herod and, what does your translation say? from all that the Jewish people were expecting. What were the Jewish people looking forward to? A public execution, right? They didn't do this stuff behind closed doors with lethal injections. They whacked your head off in front of God and everybody. And they wanted that to take place. They were looking forward to it. The Jewish were looking forward to it because Peter was a Christian and he was fraternizing with Gentiles, those people with cooties, spiritual cooties, right? 
Actually, they didn't think they had spiritual cooties. They thought they had spiritual Ebola, and you were going to die if you had contact with them, so they hated them. All the Jews wanted Peter dead, but remember, you are bulletproof until God calls you home. See, I think sometimes we have to live this life of safety, and I'm not, I'm not critiquing bicycle helmets, and I'm not critiquing seatbelts and all this other stuff, but I kid you not, our culture is so focused on safety, we, we, we put our kids in, in, in bubble wrap. You know, uh, when, they, when you go to a playground, everything's got cushion, bumper cushion. I'm going, whatever happened to playing in the sand? Does anybody throw mud balls anymore? Because, really? Oh, you might, they might get hurt. Well, of course, life's going to hurt. Uh, it, life is going to hurt, right? At any rate, until God calls you home, you're bulletproof. Go live on the edge a little bit by faith. That was free. Verse 12. It wasn't even written down, man. Yep, yeah, we're going to Israel, baby. I've had people tell me, are, 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 don't you think going to Israel is dangerous? I said, waking up is dangerous. I mean, come on. Heck, if you dream and you don't sleep any better than I do, going to sleep can be dangerous. I mean, come on. Life is dangerous. Of course it is. But you know Jesus. What are you worried about? What's the worst thing that can happen to you? You go to heaven. Really? Come on. Don't stop living so safely. You know? Anyway, verse 12. Peter wakes up. Wild and free, baby. When Peter wakes up... He goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Verse 13, when he knocks at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda comes to answer. Now, Mary is the mother of John Mark. John Mark is the character who wrote the Gospel of Mark, probably dictated by Peter. It probably should be called the Gospel of Peter, but God elected Mark to write it, but it's probably firsthand dictation from the Apostle Peter. Her home, Mary's home, is the nerve center of the church in Jerusalem. People were always meeting in her home. Now, obviously, she's a woman of means of some kind. Is a house large enough to house a church, and she's got a servant girl at that point in time, servants as well. By the way, Rhoda means rose, and this, this servant girl named Rose goes and answers the door, which was not a low-risk provision because they thought that the, maybe the Jews were outside the door with the Romans and, and swords and everything else. So she goes and answers the door. Verse 14, when she recognizes Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. Now, it doesn't say in front of the door because they all had a courtyard and you had a wall and a gate. You knocked on the gate and then if you were friendly, they opened the gate, let you into the courtyard. You walked across the courtyard, get the front door at that point in time. Now, Peter must have been talking as well as knocking. It's me, Peter, let me in. So she recognized his voice and she ran in. He clearly, Peter wanted to get out of, off the streets. I mean, he's, you know, had a jailbreak here. He's saying, let me in, let me in. I got to get off the streets at this point in time. She's so excited about God's answer to prayer that she leaves God's answer to prayer outside the gate. <laughs> Mocking. She runs back in, breaks at the prayer meeting. They're still praying. And of course, they respond with great faith in verse 15, just off the charts, man. They say to her, we're going to have you committed to 3B, right? They say to her, you're out of your mind. Wow. Ever said that to an answer to prayer, right? But she kept insisting. It is so. I mean, this is repeated, kept insisting. She's saying it multiple times and they're telling her multiple times, you're nuts, right? They kept saying, it is his angel. Like angels need to knock on doors to get in, right? I mean, this is rational, right? So the disciples are very fervent, but their prayers are very faithless. When God answered their prayers, they didn't believe it. They've been praying for days, probably around the clock, but the last thing they expected was for God to actually answer the prayer. Right? I mean, that would take a miracle. Wow. Wow. I mean, even God couldn't get Peter out of Herod's prison. Have you looked at that prison? If you've ever been by the Antonio Fortress, it's a pretty big place, right? Let's be realistic here. You know, it's interesting that sometimes when we pray and there seems to be no answer or God has not responded in the way that we want him to. You know, some of the things we do, we stop praying, right? Or we change the prayer 
Or we just think God's, it's not God's time, so I'm going to stop praying. Because I'm tired of having my heart broken, right? I ask, I ask, I ask, I ask, I ask. It seems like nothing's happening because we can't see anything happening. And so we tend to give up, don't we? Say yes, we do. I actually wonder if the church at this point in time, after praying for seven days, had stopped praying for his deliverance and started praying for a painless execution. Lord, don't let him suffer like James. Just let it be quick. Let him really sharpen that sword. Give the guy good aim. And you look and you go, would they really pray like that? We've done that. Lord, it's pretty obvious you're ready to take him home. Just may it be painless. Huh? We do that. We stop praying. And when God answers, and it's not what we expect, we don't believe he's actually answered. I'm going to swing back around to our key idea. Jeremiah 32, 27. God speaks to Jeremiah and he says, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? And you and I with our rational brain go, Oh no, nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Go back to the blank you wrote the first when you opened up this morning. Remember? The blank is anything, to, everything to, we started this with a key idea. Jeremiah answers God in verse 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thine outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee. Whatever trouble you're facing today, whatever heartbreak you're facing today, whatever anguish you're facing today, whatever rage you're facing today, whatever you're facing today, nothing is too difficult for our king. Nothing and no one. I want you to pray over that blank, the key idea. Nothing is too difficult for God, not even. That's where you put your fear and your doubt and your worry and your unbelief and that person and that circumstance. Write it down and start praying over it. And keep praying over it. My mother prayed for my brother until the day she died and he hadn't come back to faith yet. That means she should give up. You never stop praying. Ever. You don't pray because you get answers. You pray because it draws you closer to the king. It's the greatest relationship builder you've got in the world. And when you come before the king in your prayers, you surrender yourself and you say, God, your will be done and your time be done. And here's the thing that I am astonished at. When we were raising children, I swore that Mia and Caleb's hearing aids just broke. They didn't hear anything. And we had a number of very wise parents say, you continue to walk the walk, you continue to talk the talk, you continue to teach them, they're listening. You don't know they're listening. They're listening. God is working in your circumstance right now and you can't see it. And some of it he didn't want you to see. So when it does work, who's going to get the glory? He is. You just stay faithful and stay in prayer. Nothing is too difficult for God. Verse 16. Peter keeps knocking at the door, and when they had finally opened the door, they saw him, and they had their minds blown. Right? It says they were amazed. They were astonished. They were like, whoa! God really answers prayer, right? Warren Wiersbe said, God could get Peter out of prison, and Peter can't even get himself into a prayer meeting. <laughs> <clears throat> there's a time to be on your knees and there's a time to get off your knees and onto your feet and take action. There's an old story about a little girl who was upset with her older brother. Her older brother kept catching little animals in his traps and it really bothered his little sister. So the little sister told her mother about it. Mom said to go pray about it. Little sister comes back to her mom and said, I prayed about it and brother definitely won't be catching any more animals in his traps. Mom says, how can she be so sure? And she says, I smashed all his traps. Here's a principle. When you submit a prayer request to God, he may submit a work order for you. Write it down. Don't look at me like, huh, what's that? That's really good, Brad. Write it down so you can do something with it this week. When you submit a prayer request to God, he may submit a work order for you. 
See, we, a lot of times we pray, and I'm going to step on your toes because God stepped all over mine. We pray as an excuse not to act. Sometimes, sometimes, not always, but sometimes we go, God, it's all yours, so I don't have to do anything. Uh, a lot of times he involves you in the answer, right? John Bunyan once said, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. So always pray first, keep praying, and then you are enabled to take action. See, the angel got Peter out of prison. Who dressed Peter? Who? He did. The angel didn't dress him. Who actually walked Peter over to Mary's house? Peter did. Who actually went and hid himself from the authorities? Peter did. Okay? Some of us in this room have been praying for an awful long time about stuff, and you go keep praying, and maybe God has some action he wants you to take with respect to what you're praying about. So you say, God, please take care of the situation. Maybe another piece of that prayer is, Lord, is there anything you want me to do? That you want me to do? Maybe I'm just lazy or slothful or scared or I just like my blessed assurance to sit on and get wider and you take care of it. Maybe he wants you to go do something. Pray about it. And then be willing to take the action. Here's a principle, and man, the Holy Spirit just laid this one on me. If you're going to walk on the water like Peter, you got to get out of the boat and step into the storm. If you're going to walk on the water like Peter, you got to get out of the boat. Holly Colleen told me this two years ago. And I thought, well, duh, yeah. You know, we, we chastised Peter, but Peter had a lot of faith. He's the one who stepped out of the boat. Right? So maybe some of you got to step out of the boat and do something uncomfortable. Something that you're not good at. Something you've never done before. You're never going to walk on water by the grace of God unless you get out of the boat. So I ask God what boat you're hiding in and he wants you to get out of. Verse 17. Motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord led him out of prison and he said, report these things to James and the brother and they left and went to another place. They were making such a racket that Peter had to calm them down, you know, right? To avoid waking the neighbors. Now Peter gave God all the glory here because God kept him helpless during this period of time. All he did was obey, which is a good thing to do at that point in time. And then Peter went and hid himself. And you say, well, before he went to the temple and preached. Well, it's because God told him to go to the temple and preach. God didn't tell him to go to the temple and preach this time, so he went and hid himself. There is a time to fight, and there is a time to flee. One of my favorite nursery school rhymes when I was in first grade. Those who fight and run away live to fight another day. <laughs> right? There's no sense dying. I mean, if God calls you to, you do it. But there's also time to say, flee. God's got ministry for you, Peter. It's not in Jerusalem, so get out of Dodge. Now, we never know where Peter went. We don't have any record of him after Acts 15. We figure he went to Judea, Samaria. He was ministering, but we don't know where it was. God hadn't told him to preach in the temple, so he used some common sense. By the way, God's very practical. God's very practical. Don't, don't underestimate the value of common sense in the answer. You've all heard the story. There's a big flood. Guy's on the roof of his house. He prays, oh, God, save me. Boat comes by. They said, you want to ride? He says, no, God's going to save me. <laughs> Praise, God, save me. Helicopter comes by. You want to ride? He says, no, God's going to save me. Sure enough, he drowns. Gets to heaven. He said, God, I prayed. You didn't save me. He said, I sent a boat, I sent a helicopter. Sometimes God's answers to prayer are very practical. What did he tell Peter? Put your shoes on. You're going to walk, right? Get your coat on. It's cold out there. So sometimes God's very practical in his responses here. Now the James he's talking about here, by the way, is the brother of Jesus. The brother of John has been killed. This is the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, the James at that point. Verse 18, now when the day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could, become, could have become of Peter. And right after that, you want to write, duh. If you were a Roman soldier and the prisoner escaped, you inherited their sentence. Whatever it was, you inherited their sentence. Now, Peter was a capital crime, so these soldiers inherited the sentence of death because they allowed him to escape for whatever reason. Remember the Philippian jailer in Acts 16? 
What's the Philippian jailer going to do in Acts 16 when the prisoners escaped because of the earthquake? He's going to fall on a sword because he knows he's going to be executed by the Romans. He might as well do it himself at that point in time. There's no human explanation here of how Peter escaped. In verse 19, Herod tries to figure that out. When Herod had searched for Peter and not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down to Judea, to Caesarea, and was spending some time there. So he conducts this massive manhunt. Massive manhunt for Peter, no Peter. He conducts an internal investigation. If you were Herod, you would swear this is an inside job. You would swear somebody bribed the guards. I mean, there's no walls broken down. There's no gates broken down. The guards are there. They still have the chains on their wrists. Oh, Peter's just disappeared. Really? I think somebody bribed my guards. I mean, that's what you would conclude at that point in time. No confession, so he's got all the guards executed. So Peter's big plans to impress the Jewish people by killing Peter have been thwarted. I mean, he's just embarrassed. You're the king. You've told everybody, I'm going to execute this guy. Public enemy number one, baby. Public execution. Great entertainment, but bring your family, friends, fried chicken. It's going to be a great day on the green, right? You watch Peter's head go rolling. Ain't going to happen. What happened? Peter escaped from the maximum security prison. That's embarrassing if you're King Herod, right? Like really embarrassing. So what does he do? He says, I'm going to the beach. Right? I'm going to go to the beach. Go to Caesarea. Caesarea is on the beach. Right? Verse 20. He's very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, two coastal communities. And with one accord, they came to him and having one over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. Remember, this is AD 44, the beginning of a multi-year famine. A famine is where uh, the stores and vons are empty. I mean, the shelves, right? Can't get nothing, right? No food. Famine. I know we, we haven't had a famine really here in the West in quite some time, at least here. We had the potato famine in 1847 in Ireland. For the most part, we don't know what that is. But in that era, a famine meant you could die for lack of calories, right? So this is a big deal. And the king owns the bread basket. He controls the bread basket of Judea, and they were the exporters to Tyre and Sidon. And the king's all mad at him, so he says, fine, grain embargo, we're done. I'll starve you into submission. So they're obviously hurting pretty big time, and so he cuts off their grain imports, and so they send a delegation, and they bribe Herod's chief of staff into negotiating a settlement. So verse 21 tells us, on an appointed day, history tells us that this appointed day was a festival to Caesar, Augustus. So this is a two-day festival to Caesar, Augustus, <clears throat> in verse 20. The first day, Caesar Augustus gets all the glory. Day number two is Herod's day. Herod is going to be large and in charge. It says, on the appointed day, Herod, having put on a royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering a address to them. Verse 22, the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. Rob's got a picture of the amphitheater at Caesarea. This is right on the beach. <clears throat> this is a huge outdoor theater. If you ever stood in this thing, you look and you say, they built this thing by hand. I mean, there were no bulldozers or anything. It's amazing. What's even, what's even shocking is this thing was buried by sand for centuries. They only un uncovered it in 1959. And you look at the height of the tiers and you say, how much sand covered that whole area? A lot. This thing was uncovered in 59. It's, they do a lot of concerts there now like they do it <clears throat> at Ephesus. But this is a very, very big uh, Big deal. So he's on the rostrum in this giant theater, and Josephus tells us that Herod put on a robe made out of silver cloth, right? So the sun shines on this silver cloth. Am I missing something? Everybody's a little grinning. Uh, so the sun shines on the silver cloth, and the guy looks like he's radiating light. And so the people of this territory are trying to suck up to him because they need the grain imports, right? They need the food, and they go, the voice of a god, not of a man. You know, they're flattering his ego, right? And he loves it. All egomaniacs love worship, right? Love it. God is not to impress, verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. <clears throat> Here's the principle. Seeking glory for yourself is suicide. 
Seeking glory for yourself is suicide. Seeking God's glory is eternal life. This is so ironic. This man who was received acclaim by, as a god by people is struck down by the god of glory. This man who's going to execute Peter publicly is now executed publicly by God himself, right? The man who's going to rule above everyone is assassinated by a lowly worm. History records that at that very moment he got severe stomach pains. Attendants had to carry him off the stage at that point in time, and he died five days later. Now, I need you to know that he didn't die from worms. The cause of death was pride. The cause of death was pride. Ever wonder whether the, it was the same angel that freed Peter that came back and whacked Herod? Could have been. I mean, that would, God, God would have a very poetic sense of justice. The same angel that freed Peter killed Herod. Don't know that, but it's interesting. Now, in contrast to the death of Herod and the disasters of pride, what happens to the purposes of God in verse 24? The word of the Lord, Tom, if you could start getting your prayer requests ready, that'd be great. The word of the Lord continues to grow and be multiplied. This is one of Luke's summary statements. He says, in light of all the stuff that's going on, in light of all the human drama and trauma and death, what happens to the word of God? The word of God continues to grow and be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had fulfilled their mission, taking with them John, who's also called Mark. It's interesting, Herod is dead. Peter and the gospel are free. Free to multiply, free to grow. It's important that you understand nothing will stop the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Okay, let's summarize. Check your notes. Key idea. Jeremiah 32, 17, 27. Nothing is too difficult for God. Nothing, not even. And you can fill in your point of doubt or unbelief or person's name or whatever. Number two. God's loving purpose controls everything in the life of his saints. By the way, if, you're, if you belong to him, you're his saint including their suffering and death. There is nothing that goes on in your life that does not come under the umbrella of the sovereignty of God. And if you belong to him, he loves you beyond your comprehension, including your suffering. Number three, prisons, palaces, and politicians. Remember that in this election? I hear more ink being spilled about, I wonder who's gonna get elected. You know, start praying. Seriously, pray, right? If you had an excuse to pray, you got an excuse to pray. Really pray, right? Pray for wisdom for our leadership. Lord knows they need it. The problems we face demand divine wisdom, huh? So pray. Number four, when you submit a prayer request to God, he may submit a work order for you. And sometimes the answer to prayer depends on you taking the action he told you to take. Okay? Number five, seeking glory for yourself is suicide. Seeking God's glory is eternal life. Make sense so far? All right. Now that you know, do.